Good morning, church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17? Our passage this morning will be verses 1 through 7. Lately, to turn the page in the book of Exodus is to, is to open up to another occasion of Israel's grumbling. I, I told you it would be this way. I said plenty of grumbling was coming and would continue through this book and even into the book of, into the book of Numbers. But this, this event, this occasion of murmuring, complaining, grumbling, however we translate that, this quarreling is the worst we have seen so far. It is especially egregious, and the text will make that clear to us. But it is also another occasion where we see what Paul says to be true in the book of Romans, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Please look with me at the passage beginning in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit into our midst, that he would come to this scripture that we have just read, that we have just heard, and he would work by and with it in our hearts to convince us of its truth, because there's no way we're going to believe it otherwise. The news in this text is too great for us to bear regarding our sin and the good news of your grace is impossible for us to believe without the Holy Spirit convincing us that Jesus Christ indeed is the rock of our salvation. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> In 2008, 
the BBC uh, uh, broadcast a, a teleplay called God on Trial. It was authored by a man named Frank Cottrell Boyce. And, and the whole play is, is based on a, a true conversation that uh, Elie Wiesel overheard when he was a, uh, in the concentration camp as a Jewish prisoner. He overheard a, a rabbi in despair saying that God should be put on trial for the Holocaust. So Katra Boyce, uh, reading about that conversation, imagined what it would be like for God to be put on trial. So the, the film, the short film, opens uh, in a concentration camp in Auschwitz, and, and there, are, there are three, three Jewish prisoners, one of them a rabbi, who were appointed to be judges to put God on trial, to see if indeed he was among them and to see if indeed he was to blame for their suffering, the evil that was, that was, that was uh, besetting them. Argue, various arguments were made, and, and finally, the rabbi, who had not spoken thus far, spoke. He said, let me recount to you uh, Old Testament history. In the Old Testament, Abraham is told by God to, to kill his only covenant son. And, and, then, and then God tells uh, the, the death angel to, to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians, but he lets Pharaoh live. God, throughout history, he said, to, for instance, he, 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 he said to decimate certain cities, but he left other ones. And so God, throughout history, is demonstrating that he is, he is not always to be trusted. He's not always consistent except when doing evil. God, he said, I, I know that God is not with us. I can prove it by what I saw on the belt buckle of the Nazi officer, the Nazi soldier who put me on the cattle car to bring me here. On his belt buckle were the German words, Gott mit uns, God is with us. There's the proof, he said. God has abandoned us. God has made a covenant with them. He is now on their side. God is responsible for the Holocaust. God is evil. It's an intense film, an intense scene. It doesn't end there. It goes on. I won't ruin the rest of it for you, but that was the pinnacle of, of the argument. And it is... It is what is being said in our world now. It's not an uncommon accusation. It's not an uncommon feeling that God must either be all-powerful or all-good. He can't be both. Because if he were both all-powerful and all-good, then suffering would not exist in our world. But because suffering does exist in our world, then God must either be responsible for it, therefore all-powerful, or God must not be powerful and he suffers with us. 
And this rabbi in the film concluded that God was all-powerful and therefore the author of evil and not with us. Some people have concluded that. Maybe you are concluding that right now. Maybe you feel that God in this pandemic, this pandemic absolutely proves what you've suspected all along, that God doesn't care for us and that God, if he were really as good as he says he is and and all powerful at the same time, he would use that power to stop this, but it's not being stopped and you've had friends who died or you're infected yourself. Maybe you're even near death. How can God be good in all powerful how can God be with us and there be this kind of suffering in our world maybe you're asking that question by the recently revealed facts of Ahmad Avery's death how can God be real how can he be among us how can he be good and all sovereign at the same time and allow this kind of systemic evil cruel racism to occur people of Israel were asking that same question and the people of Israel in our text put God on trial and they're asking this question is God among us or not that's it verse 7 is he among us or not and and they're accusing him of treasonous abandonment how do we know how do we know whether God is among us or not well the first bit of evidence that we enter in to the courtroom is is found in verses one through four we know that God at least exists and that God was at least acknowledged to be present by the Israelites in this passage because of their accusation against him. And we must admit the same, that when we accuse God, however angry, bitter we are, we are admitting that at least he is present. He does exist. Now, is that really the case? Is that what they're, is that what they're doing here? Are they really accusing God? Well, let's set up the scene, first of all. They've been commanded to, to move that, that language is strong in every one of these transitions. God tells them to move. And then God tells them where to camp. And so God told them to come to, to uh, Rephidim. When they came to Rephidim, he said, stop here, camp. Now, Rephidim means rest. There it is on the signpost. They've come to a place. It advertises rest. And they get there and there's no water. Now, dehydration is always only a matter of hours away in the desert. And of, so, of course, they panic But instead of turning to the Lord and asking him for water, they accuse him. They quarrel and grumble once more. This is that redemptive amnesia that we've talked about before. If if God has proven anything, if God has proven anything about his expertise, he has proven himself to be an expert in water. He can turn water into blood. He can turn it back again. He can can remove the toxicity from it as he did uh, earlier in their travels. He can split it. He can divide it. And ultimately, we'll find that he can bring it from a rock. But because the water was not there when they wanted it, as soon as they experienced this discomfort and this fear, this panic, they not, they, not only do they quarrel, which we've already learned is an intense word of protest and attack and rebellion, not only do they quarrel, in verse 2 and in verse 7, 
Moses uses this word, they tested God, which is a legal term. It comes from the legal word. It's the word God uses when he brings a covenant lawsuit against Israel in Micah chapter 6. This is, it's the Hebrew word reeve, and it, it, it means to put God on trial. They've, they're putting God on trial. They're putting him in the dock, as C.S. Lewis would say modern man is doing now, that Modern man puts God on trial, God in the dock. Now, this doesn't mean that you can never be angry with God. I've urged you on many occasions that you can, you can we, he wants us to express our anger to him if it brings us closer to him. And I've given you those examples of Habakkuk and, and David and, 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 and Moses and, and Jeremiah there are numerous examples in Scripture of expressing your anger to God. But this is, this is different. This is not just expressing anger and disappointment with God. This is saying, I am so angry. I am so disappointed. I want you dead. How do I know that? Because, because Moses says, I, I, they're going to stone me, God. They're taking out this anger on, on Moses, which is also admission that they believe God is present with them because when Moses was with them, they knew that they acknowledged that God was with them. When Moses left them, they thought that God had left them. And so when they threatened to stone Moses because they are accusing him of a capital offense, they're accusing him of of treasonous abandonment that's going to lead to their death and so he should be executed for that crime and by extension they're saying so should God Jonathan Edwards says somewhere that the that the reason the sovereignty of God offends us so much is because we don't want God on his throne and in our natural state, Jonathan Edwards said, if we could, we would, take, we would take God by the throat and wrest him from his throne and kill him. And the Apostle Paul says, this is true of us naturally, that even though we know what is true about God, his invisible attributes, his divine nature. Because he's made it true, he's, made it, he's revealed it to us. We suppress the truth. We don't want God to be God. Their anger against God, this, this murderous anger toward God, is not excusable. It's not excusable in us either. But it is understandable. I, I want to remind you of what the point that we've made several times. That this is an abused, traumatized people. They've known nothing but slavery for over 400 years. They prayed to God for 429 years. And he didn't answer them until the 430th. It's understandable that when, when a moment of panic and fear comes on them, that their response is going to be over the top. It's, it's going to be ravenous. It could be, it, it could be murderous. 
doesn't excuse it, but it can, it can explain it. Just as your angry response in a situation that triggers a trauma from the past, or just like when rioting is, is not excusable, but, but if a people has, has known systemic injustice and dual standards for centuries, it's understandable. I've seen it in my in my children when they were younger. I, I remember that my my single-born children went through um, went through separation anxiety. My twins never went through that because they, as long as they had each other, they didn't care who else was around. But my single-born children went through periods of time when they were when they when when they were panicked if one of us was not present. And sometimes it would happen in a store. You know, the, the little toddler would would uh, wander around the corner and lose sight of uh, his or her uh, mother or father. And, and then they would start screaming. They would get panicked. And then when, when one of us would come, they would they'd pound on our chest. Why did you leave me? In such a time, you don't really respond with logical arguments. I never did leave you. I was just around there. You just hold them. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the second, for now, the second point, the second reason we may know that God is among us is because God actively condemns our sin. Look in verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, this is his response to the people's grumbling, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. This should have struck panic in them. It should have been terrifying to them. It's not clear that it was, but it should have. Why? Because of what God is telling Moses to do. He's saying, okay, they're putting me on trial, but Moses, I'm appointing you to be the presiding judge and these elders are going to be your jury and specifically Moses I want you to take your staff with you now that's the part that should have frightened them because nothing good so far has happened to those on the other end of that staff when Moses, lift your staff and touch the dust, and it became gnats. Lift your, lift your staff and touch the water of the Nile, it became blood. Lift your staff and, and let the wind blow, and the wind brought locusts. Lift your staff and touch the waters of the Red Sea again, and they closed over the Egyptians. It was, it was the staff of judgment that it was commonly understood that when when a when an uh, when an important person a person a, an official person had his staff it was the it was the demonstration the rod of his judgment not only symbolically but in Israel's Jewish system it eventually became the rod of punishment too so if someone were was condemned they were beaten with that same rod 40 times so Things are not looking good for the children of Israel. And, and, and it's only reasonable that we would expect that kind of response because this act of putting God on trial, on testing him, 
is the very same thing that Satan will do to Jesus Christ in the wilderness of temptation. He will come to him and say, if you are the son of God, well, I then prove it. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and his angels will pick you up. Prove to me you are the son of God. And Jesus said, you shall not test the Lord your God. This is a satanic attack. So God says, pick up the rod of judgment, Moses. The Bible says in the New Testament that God's wrath is evidenced, or God's presence is evidenced in our world too by his wrath being revealed from heaven. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the wickedness of men. What, what does he mean by that? Well, the, the, everywhere we turn, every place that we see brokenness and injustice, every place that we see disease and corruption, natural disasters, while we don't see, we, sh- we shouldn't necessarily see a one-to-one correspondence between a particular disease or natural disaster and a particular human action, we see generally that this is what God promised would happen to the world when we rebelled against Him in our mother and father Adam and Eve. And as we continue to sin, we, just, we see that what God promised would happen is happening. His world is broken. It's not the way it was supposed to be. And we are the ones who have broken it. And God is giving testimony that he is angry with what we have done to his good world by these kinds of maladies, these attacks on humanity. So just as just as a fever can give away that we're infected with the virus, so the brokenness of our world reveals that God is angry with our sin. The third reason that we see that God is among us and was with the people of Israel and never left them is something that is just too good to be true. It's, it's almost impossible to, to believe, but it's here. The cross of Jesus Christ is in this passage. And, and, and I want to get at it, first of all, by going back to that point that I made earlier, that these, the children of Israel, while their sin of rebellion against God was not excusable any more than ours is, any more than Moses' anger was at God for giving him this people, it's not excusable. It's certainly, it's understandable from a traumatized people. And as I said, when one of our children was was finally found or found us. We didn't try to, to argue with them logically. I never did abandon you. Quit accusing me falsely. We just drew them close and held them until they were, they were assured that we were present. God never responds directly or proportionally to these complaints or even this accusation of the children of Israel. 
he, he tells Moses, take up your staff, elders become a jury and follow my directions from here. Here's what is happening and I think the great Old Testament scholar Umberto Casuto captures it well when he says, God does not intervene in the strife between the people and Moses, neither in regard to the people's allegations against Moses, nor in respect to his counter charges against the people. God's attitude is that of a father whose children are in distress, and in their distress, an altercation breaks out between them. He pays no attention to the wrangling, but endeavors only to deliver his children from their trouble. Is that really the way God is acting? It is. And I can prove it with two prepositions. The preposition before and the preposition on in our text. God says to Moses, take your staff, get the elders, go to the rock at Horeb. And um, I will, verse 6, stand before you. I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. I'll stand before you. Now, later in the Jewish uh, legal code, when someone was, was being tried for a crime, they were to stand before the judge. Deuteronomy 19, come and stand before the judge. It became a common phrase in Israel to describe the attitude of a servant before a superior. Come and stand before me. And to be prepared, be prepared to do whatever I tell you to do. God puts himself in that position. It is not that, that, uh, that the people put God in the dock. God is putting himself on the, on the, on, in the place of accusation. He's putting himself on the stone of condemnation. I will stand before you as the one on trial, and then I will be on the rock. That is, I am going to be identified with the rock. The rock will be my foundation. God says, I am before you as the rock. The rock. Paul tells us not just what the rock was. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he tells us the rock was Christ. We, the, 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 the children of Israel didn't have to wait to the New Testament to find out who the rock was. The Bible says, Deuteronomy 32 says, the, the rock is the one they abandoned. God was their rock and they deserted him. Deuteronomy 32, 15 and 18. He says in Psalm 78, that rock is our redeemer. That rock is our savior, Psalm 95. So what was happening when, when God told Moses to take the stick and strike the rock? What was he saying? Take the Take the staff of my judgment that is due to the people of Israel for their crime against me, but don't take it out against them. Take it out against me. Strike me with the rod of judgment that they might be spared. 
rock was Christ. Augustus Top Lady says, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in the illusion to that time when God passed by Moses and, and hid him in the, in the rock. But then Top Lady goes on, as my friend Julius Kim points out and says, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. How does Top Lady go from the rock to the cross because Christ was in the rock performing the work of the cross in the Old Testament? God took the wrath for us. He showed us there what he was going to do in flesh and blood on the cross of Christ when Jesus was raised up on the cross and died for our sins and the proof of it was by the water and the blood flowing from his side. John Stott's book on the cross of Christ includes a story. There are multiple versions of this story too, but he includes a playlet called The Long Silence. And in that playlet, there's a, there's the, there is imagined billions of people seated on a great plane in front of God, the judge. And they start complaining, who is God to judge us? A woman pulls back her sleeve and reveals a tattoo and she says, this was... This is my number in a concentration camp. You're going to condemn me as a Jew dying in the Holocaust? And so an African-American man pulls down his collar, shows the rope burns, lynched for no other crime than being black. Or as Ahmad Avery might say, for no other crime than jogging and being black. Young pregnant schoolgirl says, It wasn't my fault. Eventually, a group gathers together and they decide they're going to put God on trial, just as we saw earlier. And this was the sentence they prescribed Let him be born on earth as a man, let the legitimacy of his birth be questioned. Give him such a, a work that even his closest friends and family will call him a lunatic for trying it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends, face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced and cowardly court. Let him be given a humiliating, embarrassing, shameful death. Let him die. Let him die gruesomely and terribly alone. Let him be buried and let there be a great number of witnesses who, witness, who see it all and can confirm that he is thoroughly, thoroughly dead. And then the playlet 
says that after that sentence was pronounced on God, there was a long silence because everyone recognized that God had already served his sentence. John Stott says in another place in that book, he says, I personally could not worship a God who had never suffered. God never calls you to worship one who has never suffered. The God who calls you to to come to him by faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of this pandemic is one who has himself suffered. He suffered all the maleffects of the fall on this world as he put on flesh and blood. And he also suffered for your and my sin. He became sin for us. The wrath of God fell on him that was due to us. Because it fell on a righteous man. He was satisfied. The justice of God was satisfied. And we are not destroyed. There's no way for any one of us to give anything less than a simplistic answer for this suffering that we are going through now worldwide. But this much can be said. The God who allowed himself to be struck with the rod of his own judgment is the one who says, if you can trust me with your greatest and most desperate and most eternally significant need, namely your own salvation, then you can trust me with the mystery of suffering. He bids you to come near. He draws you near with the hands of Jesus and, the, and into the bosom of the Father. He draws you very near to the cross so that the blood of Christ may run into the wounds you have created yourself or have been inflicted against you by sin. And he holds you there as well so that streams of living water from Jesus Christ could bring you an inexplicable respite and refreshment even in the midst of this panic. Pray it with me. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are overwhelmed once again by turning into your word and we can turn into any part of it and find there the cross of Christ. As angry as we are with our own sin, as angry as we are with the systemic racism that abides in our culture, as angry as we are at what this virus has done to your good world, along with all of 
the other natural catastrophes. We pray that that anger would never give us an excuse to pull away from you, but rather that you would pull us close to yourself and prove to us that you love us. Remind us that the proof of your love for us is that while we were yet your enemies, you gave your only begotten Son, Christ, to die for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.